Turn our Bibles now, if you would please, to 1 John chapter 2. And once again, this evening we're looking at verses 12 through 14 in the second chapter. This is just a great portion of Scripture. It's very easy for you to overlook as you read through 1 John. I, I don't know that I've heard many messages preached on these particular verses, and sometimes we get through, we start reading through the Bible, and and, uh, things really don't strike us as being so important sometimes, and we miss the truth that God is trying to give us. And everything that's written in the Bible is there for a purpose. I've mentioned before that this is the only book that we have, the only thing that God has given us, and so you can rest assured that everything that he put in the book has importance to it. And we have to stop and look very carefully and note why God has certain things in his word. And what we've learned in the past two messages is these verses are a pause in John's letter. It's a stopping point where John gives some clarification. Um, of the, so there's not any misunderstanding of his intent. Now, up to this point, John has been very straightforward and unrelenting and exposing those who claim that they know Christ, but they really don't have any evidence that there's been a change in their lives, that they're true believers. And in the process of exposing them, he doesn't want the true believers to think that he doubted their salvation. And sometimes when uh, you're preaching, this kind of confusion exists because people will sometimes miss the point of what you're trying to say. Uh, For example, when I was teaching for all those weeks on uh, false professors in the book of Matthew, uh, some people may take that the wrong way and uh, think that maybe I'm trying to put doubt in a good Christian's mind about his salvation. But the real intent of those messages was to get us to do exactly what the Word of God tells us to do, and that's to search our hearts, to examine ourselves, to make sure that we are actually in the faith. Now, those who do this, if they are false professors, then they will come away with doubt, and then hopefully they'll seek to correct that problem. But those that know the Lord, when they examine themselves and they find that that true evidence of belief in their heart, and so they know that they are the children of God, they know their faith is genuine, and that's very, very encouraging to them. So this is what John does here. Uh, The real professors will be greatly encouraged by what he has to say, but those false professors will be discouraged. Now let's read these verses again, and we see how John breaks into this attack against false professors, and he just pauses here to reassure true believers. In verse number 12, he says, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning... I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. As we read those verses, we notice a customary way of writing for the Apostle John. Uh, We know that he has been called the apostle of love, and that love that he has for the people often shows up in the way that he writes. And he begins verse number 12 by saying, I write unto you little children. And there we have a term of endearment. We find that in the beginning of chapter 2, he states the same thing again in verse 13 and then verse 18 and in verse 28 of this chapter. Uh, He uses that same phrase, my little children. And in all, in, the, in 1 John, there are nine times where John uses that phrase. 
And in all but two of those instances, the underlying word behind that is the word technion, which means an infant. And when John uses that way, uses it that way, he means to include all believers in that group, no matter what stage that you are in your uh, Christian life and your learning and your sanctification, no matter where you are in Christian development, John considers all of the people infants. And he speaks to them that way only because he considers himself to be their spiritual father and they're his children. But in verse number 13, we see little children again. And here John uses a different word. This is the word pation, and this is a word that relates to their spiritual development. And so that we can see here that what John is trying to get across to the people, he's writing about this, the doctrine of sanctification. Now, in our first message, we talked about that, the sanctifying work of God. And we discussed that there are two different types of sanctification. One of them is positional. That's a one-time act of God. It occurs at the moment that you put your faith in Christ. You're justified from your sins. That's a forensic term, which means it covers the legal aspect of salvation. But also when you put your faith in Christ, you're sanctified. And that's when God sets you apart to service and you become holy. Uh, You become a vessel for his use. And that's because you have received the imputed righteousness of Christ. And what that means is that you're holy at the moment that you believe. Now, justification and sanctification are different, but they're very closely related because all that are justified are always sanctified. And that sanctification and the justification is a permanent thing so that you're never more justified and never more sanctified at any, or any point in your life than when you first believe. That's one type of sanctification. That's the positional kind. Uh, But then we have the other kind, and this is called progressive sanctification. And it's called progressive because it's an ongoing process throughout your entire Christian life. We're always in that process. I mean, from the time that you get saved to the time that you die, you are in that process of progressive sanctification. And that's what the Bible means when it speaks about us being conformed to the image of Christ. That's as we're getting uh, closer and closer to being like Christ as we go through our life, as we learn more about the Lord, as we uh, are just uh, have this uh, Spirit of God implanted into us where we... Uh, Just learn how to to love the Lord as we should, to love others and all those things that go with our Christian life. Now, since everybody here has not been born again at the same time, then that means that we are going to be in different stages of our spiritual development. And that's because we're in different areas of the growth process. So in the second message, we began speaking of the stages of spiritual growth. In verse number 12, John calls his readers little children. And as I said before, that's a term for all believers, regardless of how long that you've been saved. But as he goes on here, he has something uh, that he wants to say to believers that are in different stages of their belief. In verse number 13, he calls some of the believers little children again, but we note once more that this is a different Greek word used here than the one in verse number 12. And John intends here to speak to those who are in the initial stage of progressive sanctification. So this is when a person first becomes a believer. And despite his physical age, he's always a newborn baby in the faith. John chapter 3, Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, and he told him that in order for him to see the kingdom of God, he must be born again. 
Now, at that point, Nicodemus was an adult. In fact, he was a very prominent adult. He was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. But if that was the particular time that he trusted Christ, his physical age wouldn't have made any difference. All the education that he had, the prominence that he had, uh, his years of training perhaps in those rabbinical schools wouldn't have made any difference to his spiritual development because at that point he would have come into the Christian life exactly like all of us do. We come in as a spiritual baby. So there's a growth process in this. There's a maturing process in the Christian life. And that is always supposed to be upward. Christians should always be advancing in their faith until they come to the full stature of that faith. So John has this in mind as he writes these verses. Uh, this is the interlude. It's a pausing place in the explanation between the difference between true believers and false professors. So we started uh, with this last week or got a little bit into it. And I only had time to just deal with part of this initial stage of belief. And this is what we call the immature. These are the children. They're the newborn babies in Christ. And so these are uh, people that come into the faith with wide eyes and they're eager to learn. They're physically immature or like physically immature people, I should say, or children. They're just starting out in this. And so what they're doing is they're uh, wiggling their toes and discovering their hands. And uh, sometimes they have trouble putting everything together. Everything doesn't make sense. But as they start to learn, spiritual matters become clearer and clearer to them. Now, in the last message, I only had time to deal with the negative aspect of this. And there is a negative aspect. And by that, I mean no Christian wants to stay in this stage. No Christian wants to be here for very long because this is a very highly vulnerable position. And this is the point where many young Christians are led astray. They fall into false doctrine because a new Christian doesn't really have the spiritual discernment yet. And so he's as liable to believe the truth or believe a lie as he is the truth. And so uh, just like a baby that crawls along the floor and picks up things and puts them in its, its mouth, doesn't know the difference between what's good for him and what isn't. And so that person hasn't learned yet. And so the, these are people that are highly vulnerable at that stage. These are the ones that the cults love to get their hands on, uh, people that don't know very much, not being able to tell the difference. And so they can get caught up in some very bad doctrine. And they listen to the wrong people. They get into the wrong groups. And even though they're saved, they'll always be stunted in their spiritual development because they have not been exposed to the truth of the Word. Now, it's also sad to say that there are many... Uh, newborn babes in Christ that get into some of our Baptist churches, and neither do they develop there. And that's because in many ministries, uh, the ministries can only be one or two-dimensional. And when people aren't developed doctrinally, then they're not going to grow very much in the Lord. And what happens with many of those people is that they become dependent upon preachers. They can't function being alone, and so they love to be or need to be controlled. And you show me ministries where a pastor has complete control of everything that goes on in the church, and I'll, almost invariably I'll be able to show you a church that's not very good or, or has underdeveloped people in it. You see, when we begin to learn from the Word of God, it's time for us to make our own decisions. We should be making good decisions about our Christian life. We shouldn't have to be told every step that we're going to take. And uh, you'll know that you're growing when you can read the Word of God, when you can hear the, messages, hear the messages and make a practical application out of those that are good for you and you choose the right steps. 
Well, that be as it may, there are, are some Christians that stay in that baby stage. Unfortunately, they do. And whether that's by the design of controlling preachers or whether it's by the capture of false prophets or even if it's because of the lack of effort on a part of the one that's converted, these are Christians that never fully developed. So that's the downside of it. Now, John didn't really deal with the downside in these verses. I thought that maybe it would be good for us to talk a little bit about it because uh, um, we do need to be aware if there's a problem there. But John is concentrating on the subject of assurance. And so he wants these converts to know that no matter what stage of that spiritual development they're in, they can find assurance of their salvation. So he actually gives us the upside of this. Now, I want to show you two ways that John gives here that the new convert can have assurance. Now, first of all, they know they are forgiven. That's the first thing that a new convert learns. He knows he is forgiven. Now, that's stated in verse number 12, and actually, it's a characteristic of all believers. He says, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Now, perhaps as we grow older as Christians, uh, this is not really something that we dwell on as much as a new convert. But what greater joy is there than to know at one moment that you are on your way to hell, that you are a lost, condemned sinner, you are on the precipice of a burning fire ready to fall in, and at the next moment when you put your faith in Christ, you have been forgiven of all of your sins. That's the first realization you get when you get saved. And there is a sense, if you can go back and remember that, those of you who have been saved for a long time, there is a sense that a great burden has been lifted from your shoulders. I remember a few weeks ago I was speaking to a man about salvation, and he was very, very depressed. He was very uneasy about what was going on in his life. In fact, he'd come to the point that he could hardly function. And he was miserable because he couldn't figure out what he was going to do. Well, I believe that the Lord was already working in that man's heart, and that's why there was so much turmoil. Uh, he, he, was, he was seeking something. God was, God was trying to lead him somewhere. And I think that God prepared my spirit to go and speak to him and to give him that good news of how that turmoil could be settled in his life. And so I began to talk to him about what Christ did on the cross, and I talked to him about forgiveness of his sins and getting that burden lifted from him. And I asked him if he wanted to be saved, and he said, I do. And so I told him, I said, you need to trust in the Lord right now, and then he will forgive you of all of your sins. And in the end of that conversation, he said, I feel great. He said, I feel like a burden's been lifted from me. I'm so relieved. And that's an exciting moment for a new convert. I mean, you realize at that moment that you've been forgiven of your sins, you won't have to spend eternity in hell. And friends, that is an incredible joy that you get when you learn that. Now, I find that many, many new converts are so excited about that that they cannot keep that information to themselves. They just have to go tell somebody what's happened to them. And that's why I say that when we get further and further away from that experience, away from that initial belief that we have in Christ, sometimes we forget what that feeling was like. And so what we do, we think, well, we're really growing here in the Lord and getting a little bit big for our britches sometimes, I think. And so we move on to the high-priority doctrines, and we don't think so much about forgiveness anymore. But a new convert does. He, he thinks about it. It's a universal reaction. And I think that what we need to do is that we need to go back to that point of forgiveness and understand that forgiveness is a very high-priority doctrine. See, you can be saved without knowing about election. 
You can be saved without understanding the difference between positional and progressive sanctification. And you can be saved without knowing the difference between the doctrines of local church and universal church. You can be saved without knowing any of that, but you're not going to get saved if you don't know something about sin. And you're not going to be saved if you don't know something about the consequences of it and how you can be relieved of it and how you can be forgiven of it. You have to know that. It's a critical doctrine. Now, John states it very well here. He says that we are forgiven for his name's sake. And that means that forgiveness only comes because of Christ. You have to know that. You can't skip over that fundamental understanding of the truth and think that there's any other cause that you could be forgiven of your sins or that you could be saved. So we can't come to God on any other basis than this, and that is the cross of Christ. Jesus made that clear when he said that he was the only way to the Father. Now, we're familiar, very familiar, with what he said in John 14, 6, when he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We're, we're very familiar with that. But I want you to listen to another way that Jesus states it in Luke 24. Here it says, And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Remission of sins, that means forgiveness. And in his name, we have that forgiveness. Now, we notice there in verse number 46 that what we actually have is a synopsis of the gospel. This is what John means when he says, in his, for his name's sake. Because behind the statement that he makes is the sinless life of Christ. There's the deity of Christ. There's the sacrifice of Christ. The time that he spent in the tomb. The time that he was raised from the dead. It's all there. That's the gospel. And without that, there's no person that will ever be saved. And so a new convert is right at that point. All of that information has just become real to him, and he knows that he's forgiven. And so armed with that information, a new believer has every right to feel assured of salvation. Now, he doesn't get saved with doubt. I mean, all confidence at the moment that you get saved, all of your confidence has to be in Christ. And then all the doubts are dispelled, Because if there is doubt that Christ can't do all that he said that he would do, then there is no salvation. So all Christians have this promise. And and if you're a new Christian or an old Christian, you have the promise. No matter what stage that you're in, you have been forgiven. But it seems like that new convert that's real close to that time of regeneration, he clings to that one doctrine as his hope. And he has to because he doesn't really know very much else. I mean, he he has no problem prioritizing this doctrine because he doesn't have a whole lot yet to lean on. He doesn't know anything. So no matter what doctrines that you might learn as you grow in Christ, keep that one up front because that's a foundation of assurance. And so I'm sure this is why that John mentions this in verse 12 when he speaks of all Christians as little children. Well, he mentions little children again in verse 13. And he gives another reason for their assurance, another foundation. And this one is, they know they have a father. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the father. Isn't that characteristic of a little baby? I mean, the first persons that he recognizes are his parents. Now, sometimes, I don't know if it's true all the time, but it kind of seems like dada is the first word that a young child learns. I don't know if that's easier to say in mama or not, but, but that's usually what they say. And a, and a newborn baby, 
When, when they hear that pa- their parents' voice, when their parents enter into the room, that little baby lights up. That makes him happy to know that his parents are there. One of the greatest joys of having children is the adoration that children give. And parents and grandparents, you know what I mean here. Uh, ba- little babies crave attention, but I think it might be true that grandparents crave just a little bit more attention. I mean, we like the attention. So we, we like to see that little grandchild come and run and jump and, and, and just jump up in your arms. And, and you, you love that. You like to show that love for the child, and you want that child to show love for you. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago about Elisa. Uh, when we go down to San Diego and she doesn't know that we're coming, um, I'll go to pick her up at preschool. And as far as she knows, that day is... Like any other day, she expects her mom's going to come and pick her up. And so when I come into the preschool and I go in the class to get her, she comes out and she looks up and she's got that look of surprise on her face. And she says, Papa, I'm so happy to see you. Well, that makes you feel good because we crave that kind of attention. And that's the characteristic of a child. They don't try to analyze you. They aren't trying to figure out the reasons why that they should love you and trust you. They just do it. They have full dependence upon you. They know you're there to take care of them, and they expect that. They know you're going to protect them and provide for them. You know, a little child never worries about whether you have a job or not. He doesn't worry about how much money you got in your bank account. He doesn't worry what kind of car you drive. And, you know, I learned this when, when, I was, um, when my children were, were raised. You know, I tried do my best to provide the best that I could for them, to give them things that they needed and things that they wanted as well, a nice place to live. But I found out that it really doesn't make a whole lot of difference to a little child. The surroundings don't make that much difference because they have their dependence on a person. They have their dependence on that one that they love who provides for them. And so little children are like that. And uh, they know that you provide for them. They don't care about any of the details. They just come wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, no pretenses. They just love you. And that's the way it is when people, with people when they're born again. They rejoice that they have a father. And that's because there's this new sense of belonging in this new spiritual world that they're in. And so they're enthusiastic about that. They can't be quelled by all the details. Their enthusiasm can't be dampened by all those details. And that's why it's so disconcerting that there are some Christians who think so little about that. You know, they've been around long enough that going to church all the time and hearing the same things over and over again doesn't really matter too much to them anymore. Don't think too much about it. They have a father, so what? what uh, what's the big deal about that? It's really not much to think about. You know, I tell you something. I'm X number of years old. And if you, uh, if you told me that my dad was going to come walking through those doors in the next five minutes, I'd be right over there looking through those doors seeing if he's coming. I'd be in hopeful expectation. I'd want to see my dad coming. And if you told me that on next Sunday morning that we were going to have a service where we were going to honor my dad for his 50-some years of service in the Lord before he went to be the Lord, and we're going to have that tribute for him, I'd be here. I'd be here with bells on because I'd want to hear what was said. Do you know what we've got? We've got some crusty old Christians that really aren't interested in hearing too much about their father. They're just too busy with other things. They're previously occupied with all the other things that are going on in their lives. So they don't come. They're doing something else tonight. 
Now, I realize not all of them are that way, but that's pretty much the story for a lot of Christian people. They're just not too excited about knowing the Lord. Well, that's not the way it is with the new convert. They're growing. They can't get enough of the Father. They hear the Father's voice. They're excited every time that you talk about him. Well, that's the first stage of spiritual growth. Everybody comes in as a newborn baby. There's a downside to it. That's the vulnerability. There are many people that try to deceive newborn Christians. Verse 18 that we'll get to a little bit later speaks interestingly of this factor. And where John, there John uses this word padia again. And it's only uh, the second time in, in 1 John, only one of two times. It's the other time we mentioned a minute ago that he ever used this word in 1 John. So you don't want to stay in that stage. Paul said, Brethren, be not children in understanding, howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. So you need to move on from that stage because as you, do, as you grow and as you gain more knowledge, it increases your love for the Father. It increases your appreciation for that forgiveness of sin. And if you're a Christian and have been saved for a long, long time and those things don't excite you anymore, then it's time to, to check up on yourself. You know, Christians like that, I don't care how long that they've been saved. When they get to that hardness in their heart, they're actually spiritual thumb suckers. I mean, the folks that don't show up for church services because they've got other things they want to do rather than be in God's house, they're still spiritual thumb suckers. Well, let's move on then. There's another stage. We get to advance a little bit here. And in the next one, we find out why there's assurance for this class. Now, the second a group of people that John shows us here are the maturing. Well, first we have the immature. Now we have the maturing. They're in that growth process, and these are the young men. So the growth process is a maturing process. It's always an active one. It's always going on. And as you grow, you move up to that next level of being the young man. Now, I hope you understand, ladies, that I'm not trying to leave you out of this uh, because this is kind of a generic thing here where we're talking about both sexes and, and would be true except when we get maybe next week or next time we might talk about pastors and deacons and things like that and, and women aren't eligible for those offices. But uh, the young men covers you young ladies as well and those of you that are spiritually vibrant and learning. Now, the young men, then, are mentioned in the middle of verse 13 and in the last of verse 14. In the 13th verse, he says, I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. And then in verse 14, I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Now, there are two statements that are very closely connected. The first one is the uh, result of the second. So you really can't separate those two statements altogether. But for purposes of explanation, we're going to divide these up so we can understand what John means. Now, I'm going to have to cut it in two. I've only got time for one of these tonight. And he says, I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. So what about the young men? Well, these are the folks that fight for the faith. These are the... Young ones, young growing Christians that are out there in the front fighting for the faith. Now we see the word overcome there, and that's an indication of the struggle that this group has with the devil. Now the immature Christians are not in this group because they really can't yet contend for the faith. They don't know very much yet, and so they're not good fighters. They don't know how to load up all the ammunition that they need. Now an immature Christian can get into an argument over the Bible and end up shooting himself in the foot. 
And so I don't recommend that uh, young Christian or new Christians get into many theological debates. You just stick with what you know. That's how you got saved and, and uh, work on converting people with that simple story of your own salvation. And then when you get a little bit more skill, then you're ready to bring in the other arguments and uh, bring in the rest of God's Word into that. But I think that John gives us this category perhaps uh, for another reason, because there is some sense in which physical age can play into this. And that's also true when we get into the next stage when we talk about fathers. The physical age can play a part of it. So physical age gets into this because uh, these kinds of Christians are at the place where they have real uh, zeal for the Word. They have learned to use it with some acumen. But this person is also in the time of his life when he can go out there physically and he can do a lot of work for the Lord. Now, it reminds me of Timothy. He was a young man who was maturing in his faith. Now, let's read some verses here in 1 Timothy. If you turn there for just a minute. And we're going to look here and see what Paul says to Timothy. Uh, Timothy was not converted under Paul's ministry, but he did grow and mature under his ministry. And so Paul called him a son in the faith, uh, much like John refers to his readers as children. Uh, Timothy was was uh, Paul's son in the faith. Now, I want you to look here in the first chapter to begin with. And Paul says in verse number 18, 1 Timothy 1, verse 18, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went on before thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. Now there Paul says... Uh, warring a good warfare. Now, that tells us that we're in a conflict. And a young, maturing Christian is at an age where he's vibrant, where he's strong physically, so that he can endure this conflict. Now, if you'll flip over to chapter 4, verse number 12, he says something here. He says, uh, verse 12, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Now what we have here is a young man who is growing in the faith. He has paid attention to doctrine, and Paul encourages him in that. He wants him to be profitable to the ministry. And so he, he's not that Christian who's been stunted in his growth, but he's actively applying himself in where God wants him to be. So he gets saved. He's under Paul's tutelage. And so he starts to grow. And according to Paul, looking at his life and seeing what he's doing, he knows that Timothy can be very, very profitable to the ministry. Now, I want to say this to some of you, some of you that are in your prime. And I can speak to teenagers here, and I'm speaking to young adults. I'm speaking to some young married couples and maybe even to some of you that are on the upper age of, upper edge of middle age, and uh, you still got some strength left in you. But you're at a time of your life when you've got energy and a time when you have the capability of being used tremendously in God's service. But you're also at the time of your greatest distraction. And so what you can do is you can put all of your time into your career, 
You can put time into building a name for yourself and accumulating all the stuff of the world. And that's because you're at a time of life when you have the energy to do it. But please don't let that consume you. You have much potential, just like Paul writes to Timothy, a great potential to make a difference in people's lives. So you have all the resources that are at your fingertips to become great servants of God. You can carry on in the faith. You can fight for the faith. And in fact, you know, 25 years from now, when, when I'm gone from here, uh, there'll be some people that'll be able to step up and carry on and teach the same doctrines that the church has been teaching. But you know what happens many times that a pastor will preach and preach and preach and do that for years. And the people that are in this age group, instead of applying themselves, instead of getting into a position where they're going to be handling the church at a later time, instead of equipping themselves through the Word and their study and giving their time and energy to the Lord, they're sitting on the sidelines. And they're too preoccupied with everything else that's going on. And so when that pastor leaves, the doctrines go with him. Now, Paul had something to say about that, too. He'd been teaching the Hebrews in one of the most profound letters that we have in the New Testament, and he stops. And in chapter 5 of Hebrews, he says, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Now, here's the problem in many of our churches and some of the problem right here, that many of you have been listening for a long, long time, but you're not yet teachers. You're still sitting here when we could be having things like a men's Bible study. You know how many times I've been asked that? Could we have a men's Bible study? And you know what my response to that is most of the time? I sure do wish that somebody would step up and take that on. We've got men that are capable of doing that. Now, I... I Uh, teach four services a week. I I spend nearly 40 hours of preparation in each week preparing for sermons. I really don't have time to dedicate to that. And really, to where we are right now, I shouldn't have to. Now, some of you men have been listening for a long time. And so how much of your time have you put into retention of God's Word and further study so that you could actually be people who can step up and be teachers? I don't ask you to put in the same kind of time I do because I know you can't do that. And I don't want to make this message tonight a a story about me and tell you how great that I am. I mean, all of you know there's one thing that I hate. It's a preacher who uses I more than he uses God. But I want to tell you something, just a little bit about something, uh, the way that, that I handled this when I was a young man and when I was coming up. You know, I worked a full-time secular job for most of my life. And all of that time that I did, I was very, very busy in church work. I was teaching and, and preaching. I, I accumulated a library on my own. I studied. I, I listened to sermons. I, uh, as I said, I worked in the church. And I don't get up and answer questions in Sunday morning form class, and I don't get up and preach from the Word of God because I've got all kinds of super talent. And I don't do it because I'm supernaturally gifted to do such a thing. In fact, I think probably of most preachers, I'm so deprived of talent that I have to spend more time than most do in just getting this thing right and just preparing and and teaching and knowing that I'm, I'm teaching you the truth. But here's what I know about all of that. I know it can be done. I know it's possible to do it because I've done it. 
And you can be in a place where you can be, you are, I should say, you are in a place where you can be like Timothy because you've got that energy still. And so what you can do, whether you believe it or not, you can do hard work. You can juggle your family. You can teach in the church and put your time there. You can be a Christian servant. It's possible to do it. Don't think it can't be done because it can be done. But I tell you this, it won't be done unless there's determination. And it won't be done unless you have God's help, and it's not going to be done unless you use God's method. Now, I'm going to talk some more about that next time. Uh, It's going to be a while before we get back to this, because now having put myself up on the pedestal of hard work, now you can take some shots at me because I'm going to take some time off to go welcome a new grandbaby into the world next week. So um, I'm going to give you some time to think about this. It's going to be a little bit before we we come back to it, but you, you think about this. Um, we have some young men, we have some people that it's time to step up. It's time to, you know, not just, I mean, come to the place where God's work is important in our lives and step up to the plate here and begin to serve God and take on some ministries that need to be filled in this church. I mean, we've got enough people that we shouldn't have to be looking outside for any kind of a help. So think about that, and the next time we're going to come back to it, I'm going to speak to you about the second part of that about the young men. Then I'm also going to talk to you about fathers. Who, who are the fathers that he's speaking of? And probably of most interest to me, and maybe to some of you, is have you really reached that place where you're a father? Do we have anybody in the church that's really the father that John is talking about here? I think that's going to be a little bit interesting to us. So we'll look at that in a couple of weeks or so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house tonight. Lord, we see that um, John has given us some good information here about growing in the faith and what's expected of us. And I pray, Lord, that we would dedicate ourselves to you, that we would realize how important that this work is. Uh, There's nothing that we could ever do that could could be as as awesome, so so weighty, as important as what we do right here in this church and teaching the Word of God and getting the message out to other people. So, Lord, help us that that we would realize that we really need to do this. We need to step up and take some position here to, to work in the church as we should. Lord, bless as we sing tonight. Be with your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.